Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 2, 1 through 12. The word of God speaks to us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an, had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they, thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is God's word to us. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Corey Ferencamp. I'm a pastor here. Um, I think you saw my picture up there. I get installed on December 6th. I'm excited about that. It's really an honor to be here and share God's word with you and, um, and the way that the Lord has been moving in my heart. But I just think that the most important thing that's been done this morning is the reading of God's word. So I'd love to pray with you that, that he would have his way this morning. So Father, thank you that uh, your word is spoken, that you are, you're, you're declared to be holy you're, you are our firm foundation, Lord. What you say goes. And so this morning, uh, Father, I ask that you would soften hearts. Father, I ask that you, would, um, that you would do the work of transformation, of forgiveness. And uh, Father, that we would see you as bigger and better and more lovely than we did when we came in these doors. In Jesus' name, amen. So hey, if you're, if you're a guest here, um, this is a great Sunday to be here, but uh, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the text. I'd encourage you to grab a Bible from the windowsills, and then that's our gift to you. You could keep that and, and take that home with you. But to start off, I'd like to share a story and let you guys in on a little secret that sailors know. I wouldn't call it a rite. It's more like a, a sacred game. 
um, that we play on the ship. It's probably been going on for hundreds of years. I don't know when it started, but it, it's fun. And I'm going to say this at risk of divulging some secrets and possibly um, giving away some stuff that people might be experiencing in their futures. But uh, it's a well-documented fact that on the ship, on every United States Navy ship, every long line actually leads to something really good at the end. Right? So the longer the line, the better the thing at the end. The more, the more line pain you experience, the more line gain you get at the end. All right, so I want you to think about this because when the Marines on the ship aren't back in their room eating crayons, they go out and they look for lines to stand in because what they want to do is receive something really good at the end. So sailors that are well-seasoned know of a game, and it goes something like this. You grab a group of 10 guys. You go stand in the middle if it's an aircraft carrier, like some hatch over by the hangar bay. And the hatch is a door, by the way. And every minute to three minutes, the guy in the lead just kind of walks in the front door so it looks like the line is shrinking. And then you just observe and wait for Marines to come by, and they just keep on jumping in that line. And then I don't know if they pass the word to their other Marine friends, but eventually that line just keeps on growing. The guys that kind of step into the hatch, they can walk past and then go back and jump in the line and talk to the Marines. Or you could kind of just stand back and observe and see how long that thing goes on for. It could go 100 people long. It could be hours. And you can even jump in that line and say, like, hey, this is awesome. What are we waiting for? And those guys will be like, I don't know, man, but it must be something really good. <laughs> so um, if you haven't experienced that and you are a Marine or you're, you're going to be a Marine, I'm actually not even afraid because you're going to fall for it perfectly. Because the force of a crowd is such a strong force. When we see a crowd, we think, man, there must be something good over there, right? And that's kind of what we're seeing in our story here. So I don't think that it's actually a stretch to say that all of us are actually looking for and longing for something good in our life that will satisfy us and that'll last. Scottish writer Bruce Marshall, his protagonist in his book, The World, The Flesh, and the Father and Father Smith says, the young man that rings the bell at a brothel is unconsciously actually looking for God. At the brothel, that man's not going to find the good. He's not going to find lasting good. But unlike the Marines that find at the end of their sailor-made line, what they find at the end is actually it led nowhere, right? Jesus is actually the greatest good in the world. He always has good gifts to give to those that are in his presence, and should we, we should expect that he always has good gifts to give those that we also bring into his presence. Namely, the good gift that no one else can give of forgiveness of sins and also healing. The reality is that the Father has entrusted us with such a great responsibility, a high calling, like this great mission that we're called to. It's the type of responsibility that God the Father would never entrust to somebody that's like a hired hand or a servant but he'd only trust to a child. They would only trust to somebody that's actually experienced that forgiveness, that's experienced that healing. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you hear the urgency in Paul's voice? If we, 
the children of God don't bring the good news to people or, as we're going to talk about in this text, bring people to the good news or the presence of God himself at all costs, then they actually won't believe and they won't be saved. I want us to feel the weight of that. And to that end, in this text, what we're seeing is three points. Bringing our neighbors and friends or people into the presence of Jesus for healing and forgiveness is actually an act of worship. The second point is Jesus wastes no moments when we're in his presence. He always has something good to give everybody. And number three is we all need the forgiveness and the healing of Jesus, and he has the authority and the power to do that. So I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but evangelism, the reality of evangelism is it's a great act of worship. When we bring other people into the presence of Jesus for healing, for forgiveness, what we're doing is we're magnifying the worth of Jesus. So imagine this scene. There's people that show up super early. They hear about a guy that's teaching there. And they're the early kind that want to show up. They want to lean in. They've heard stories of this man. So they're sitting on the front row. And then pretty soon they hear like scratching on the roof. And they're like, what, what's that noise? They start to feel debris falling on their head. And then pretty soon like there's a hole that's big enough where somebody sticks their face through this guy's roof. And they're thinking like, man, that's a crazy thing to do. Like who digs a hole in the top of somebody's roof just to hear somebody. If you really wanted to, you should have shown up early like me because you get to hear them better. You're not sticking out in the front door. But then pretty soon, more debris keeps on falling and the hole gets so big that they're actually lowering a grown man through it. People have to move out of the way. There's stuff all over the ground. The crazy thing is these people view this probably as a type of inconvenience or a distraction, but notice Jesus Jesus is happy to engage this man and what this man's friends are doing in ripping a hole in the roof, and he even calls it an act of faith. This man's friends overcame so many barriers to get this man into the presence of Jesus because what they have heard was this was the man that actually, when he was baptized in the River Jordan, like a lot of other people had been by John the Baptist, this one was different because God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my son and I'm well pleased. This was a man that was going through all that region and the demonized people that were doing crazy things, the demons were leaving people's bodies at his command. He was healing people. He was bringing sight to the blind. Um, So this man's friends knew if we could just go get our friend and take him into the presence of Jesus, then surely he would get healed. They knew that Jesus had something to offer him that nobody else could. I want us to notice this one thing early on is that a good friend that knows of a doctor that could heal their friend of a terrible disease doesn't just tell their friend of the doctor. A good friend doesn't even just recommend that their friend go to the doctor. A good friend takes their friend to that doctor and doesn't take no for an for, for um, answer. Here we see that the terrible physical affliction that this man proved, uh, in this man, proved to be the means of the greatest blessing. And it was only the means of the greatest blessing in his life, only because his friends actually brought him to Jesus. This man could not walk when he woke up that morning 
But then by that evening, he came running home to tell his loved ones about a man that he met that healed him, made him walk, and even better yet, forgave him of his sins. But without his friends actually bringing him into the presence of Jesus at great pains and inconvenience to themselves, this man would have lived his entire life without being able to walk. This man would have lived his entire life without knowing the forgiveness of his sins. But no doubt the rest of his life now, he would thank and praise God for his healing. Who would have known that his physical affliction that he had was actually the beginning of his eternal life? When we bring our friends into the presence of Jesus, it's actually an act of worship because what it does is it's a demonstration of how much we value Jesus that we think that he has something to offer our friends and our neighbors that he can do for them what he also did for us. It magnifies Jesus' worth, his love, his power, and his beauty. Listen to the words of John Piper in his book, Pleasures of God. God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others but a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or bucket brigades. So if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees, drinking to your heart's satisfaction until you have the refreshment and strength to go back down into the valley and tell people what you found. How do we bring our friends and our neighbors into the presence of Jesus? What the text is not saying, and I don't think what anybody's saying, is that you should go back to the back wall, find the nearest community group, and then take your, your saws all over there and rip a hole in the guy's roof and then throw your friend in the hole. Um, I, think, I think what we're talking about here is, for many, probably the easiest way to bring people into the presence of Jesus is the easiest and practical way is just to bring them to Sunday church service. We should really have confidence in what God does through the word taught and read and sung here every morning. Every Sunday, Jesus meets us here. Many have met Jesus sitting in these very seats for the first time. And our church coming up soon is entering into a season of Advent. And that's a season where like, the crowd of the church is in, a, is in a state of anticipation, waiting and longing, because what we're saying to the world is we think that something at the end of our line is actually something of immeasurable worth that's worth giving to the world. So this is a great time to bring friends to church during Advent, and there's no better time probably than this Christmas Eve service when people are open to coming to, to, to church for the, uh, for the first time even possibly. The second thing that you could do is living on mission in your vocation at home and in the marketplace by pushing back darkness with a radically different way of life and inviting others into your life. The presence of Jesus in you causes you to love others that people don't. It causes you to be wounded rather than to wound, to forgive the unforgivable, to serve rather than to be served, and to give your life away. And what this does is it gives people a taste of what God's kingdom is like. It gives us a taste of how we are created to be and a foretaste of what it's gonna be like in the new creation. So what we're really called to do is how Jesus said, the same way that my father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now, the one thing that we can count on 
when we bring other people into the presence of Jesus is that Jesus is gonna waste no moments. He always has something for every single person that's here. Um, I think about this, this is crazy, coming up into Advent season, that when we read, we're gonna read it over and over again, Luke's account, there's a tax census that's given over the whole region. And the whole known world is like upended. Everybody has to leave their home and go back to the place where they were born and take the census. So we read the story of what God did in Joseph and Mary's life in order to get Jesus to Bethlehem so he can be born in a manger, right? Fulfill prophecy and everything else. But recognize that like it doesn't say that there was a census called for Joseph and Mary. It says for that whole region, the whole known world. So we see that God had a great purpose in Joseph and Mary's life, but what we don't recognize many times is that we serve a God that had great purposes in every single person's life that he upended at that time, thousands of people. He was moving in the midst of their lives. So think about this, God not wasting any moments. Mark is gonna refer to three people. The paralytic. It seems the easiest person in this to look at and see what God was doing in this moment is the paralytic because he was the one that was healed. But notice, this is also a super confusing encounter. It was, it's confusing for us as we look deeper, but it was also really confusing for the paralytic and for his friends. So his friends went and picked him up, carry him over there, lower him for the roof because he needs healing. But what Jesus tells him when he brings him into his presence is your sins are forgiven. So this is confusing to us, and I would think presumably to this man, because it's actually inconsistent with what we see with the rest of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, where we see that repentance and belief in the gospel are required for forgiveness. Even chapter 1, verse 15, just a few verses before this, in that region, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent, right? But this man doesn't ask for forgiveness, and there's no mention of him repenting at all. What we really see in in this confusing encounter is is a few things. One is that Jesus knows the heart of a man. The man is thinking, if I could only walk, then I would be content, then I would be happy. But Jesus knows that although this would bring him happiness and contentment for a little while, it would eventually wear off. There's a lot of people that are walking around in the world that are discontent and unhappy with their life in seasons, right? So it's not walking that brings people contentness and happiness. We're prone to think that our primary concern is our circumstances. But what Jesus is telling us and what Jesus told this man is that it's actually our sin. His, this man's separation from God and the deformative nature of sin in his life was his biggest problem and it's ours as well. What we also see with this um, is that with the, with the paralytic, Jesus takes this act of faith and knowing this man's heart, Jesus is eager to forgive this guy. We see the same thing in the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't formally repent or have a profession of faith, right? We like to think in formulas, so we put confidence in the right confession. I have to feel this certain way in my heart. I have to say these certain things. But Jesus sees the heart and then he's eager to forgive. Keller calls this aggressive forgiveness. This is how God forgives. He's looking to forgive. Now, we are no different. In our lives, we have circumstances that are less than ideal, 
and we think we need to be content and happy. We need to get these things fixed. Or another way of putting this is, what are you looking to as a savior? If I only had fill in the blank, it could be a better job, a degree, a better home, or it's like the holiday season goes by more time, then I'd be happy. So if I only had, what is it? Then I would be happy. The reality is Jesus's presence and the forgiveness that he offers is actually the answer. And then the crazy mind-blowing reality is he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just go, your sins are forgiven and go. The man actually is then rose so he can walk. So Jesus cares about the, the smallest of things in our life. He cares about the biggest things in our life. We need to bring him to Jesus. We also see that Jesus didn't waste any moments with the crowd. Many of these people came because the crowd was thinking, this is that man, Jesus. Like we talked about, God the Father said this is his son. He's doing all these crazy things. Or maybe there are people walking by and they were like the Marines, and they go, hey, there's a crowd, and they just like jumped in with the crowd. But either way, all these people, they all listen. They get to hear Jesus' teaching. They get to see a demonstration of God's power in, in, in making this man walk. They're actually now called to follow Jesus like this man, notice, by seeking forgiveness in the healing that he was offered because they know in their hearts that they need that same forgiveness, and many of them need that same healing. Now they've been introduced to the man that can give it to them. So the ball's in their court is the crowd. So there's this way that we can be a part of the crowd where we feel like we've actually participated in something because we were there. But the invitation is not to come and see, but to come and see and then taste. Come and experience. Jesus' forgiveness is for you. It's for me. But it's not just for us to see. It's for us to experience. And we see this last crowd. Jesus has a lot to do with them, the scribes. The scribes. So this is the introduction in Mark's gospel of the scribes. And these are the teachers of the law. These are the experts on interpretation. And almost every account that you see them with Jesus, they're giving Jesus a hard time. They're challenging his teaching. Even the times where it's like, oh man, it seems like they're believing it. They're still like very questioning and kind of like, I don't get it. What are you doing? Their minds are being completely blown at all angles. Um, the scribes are angry, we see in this text, because only God can forgive sins. And guess what? They're actually right. Like, only God can forgive sins. Like, you can only forgive something of somebody when you are the offended party. Like, I can't forgive a transgression committed by somebody else against you on your behalf. You have to be the one that, that forgave him. So for Jesus to forgive sins against God, Jesus is actually making a claim to be God, the offended party. Jesus sees the, the thoughts of the scribes in verse 8. Notice that. They're not over there talking. Like, Jesus knows what they're thinking and then responds. So that, that's, a, that's like a miracle in itself, right? It should be a, a, to the scribes. And then he responds to what they're thinking in their head with a question that has been for 2,000 years, people have debated this question. And, and, uh, and, and a lot of people that are very well respected, like back down into church history, what is easier to say, or what is easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? 
And it amazes me how we get wrapped up on stuff that actually isn't the point at all, right? People are debating which one's harder to do because in an act of irony, Jesus does them both. And what do, in doing in what seems to be the easier in forgiving the man of his sins is actually Jesus's, one of his first steps in heading down a road that would lead him to a cross where he'll bear the weight of the sin of all humanity on himself, making forgiveness possible to anybody who would believe. So declaring forgiveness of the man's sin should bring the offense and the scorn of the scribes if, in fact, Jesus is not God, right? So the scribes are not wrong here. No one can forgive an offense, like we said, unless they're the offended party. So they're questioning in their minds, who is this man that is saying that they can forgive sins? He's claiming to be God. Um, So either Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, like what the scribes are saying, or Jesus is God. There's There's not another option there. And then we don't see it here except in Mark's phrase where he says at the end of this text, all were amazed and they glorified God. So surely this, shape, this, this event shaped those scribes uh, that were challenging him. And it's an amazing thought to think like what wisdom Jesus has. So these men, these wise men, these experts in the law, they left that moment, no doubt, with these questions like seared in, his mo- in their minds, right? Because this man actually got up and walked that what came in a paralytic. If he can say that, then surely that man's sins were also forgiven. So who do we have in our life that we can look at like I'm holding my dad in my mind? Who do we have in our life where we have seen a super radical, um, mighty act of God that was undeniable? That could be like a change of life, um, a softened heart, repentance. And then if we hold that to be a work of God, then what's, what, what else is God capable of doing? Jesus, notice, does not get offended by the scribes. He doesn't blow them off. He doesn't go, I'm God. I know I'm God. I'm secure in that. I don't need to prove it to you. He like lovingly engages them. Notice, so Jesus had something even for the wisest of everybody. And if Jesus had something for these three groups, the paralytic, the crowd, and the scribes, and the Bible, including this story, was written for us, then Jesus also has something profoundly important for you and me as well this morning. We are actually ones that are also in need of healing and forgiveness And Jesus has the power to do both of those right now. Jesus did incredible things in Capernaum. So notice that Mark says that Capernaum was when he had returned home. Capernaum is his home in the beginning of our story. In fact, no city enjoyed so much of Jesus' presence as Capernaum. Jesus lived there after he moved from Nazareth, and it was known as Jesus' home base. It was actually a large town on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. And this is the town, like we talked about, this town is where Jesus did the teaching on, I am the bread of life. This is also the the town where Matthew, the tax collector, was called into the ministry. Um, Jesus spends a lot of the time in that early part of Mark and then later uh, in this town of Capernaum. But here's the crazy part. 
Um, Mark says at that moment, that crowd that's in that house, we've never seen anything like this. They glorified God. I mean, who has ever seen anything like this, what they just witnessed? But sadly, this town that's all gathered so tightly in this house, experiencing Jesus um, and listening to his teachings, I mean, think about this. What did it look like to hear a sermon from Jesus? Or what did it look like to see Jesus actually raise somebody um, and heal them and to like engage in wisdom with the scribes like he did? An amazing thing. They were filled with wonder. They were filled with amazement. And then apparently what they did is they just like forgot about it and went home. Because what we see in Mark, Matthew chapter 11, they come under the frightening judgment of God. This is for Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you would have been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So we're prone to think that merely hearing the gospel and witnessing miracles is enough, but you don't get forgiveness of sins by just watching. You don't get healed by just watching other people get healed. You don't experience Jesus when you just stand off and you're part of the crowd. Think about this, Capernaum heard Jesus himself. What must the sermons have sounded like, the miracles? But what does all of that mean if we just remain spectators? The healing and the forgiveness of Jesus is also for you and for me. So the invitation this morning is not just to witness Jesus or to think about the people that have experienced Jesus. It's to actually experience Jesus for yourself, to come to him. The truth is, as J.C. Ryle once said, the same gospel which is the savor of life to some is the savor of death to others. And that same fire which softens the wax will also harden the clay. Nothing, in fact, seemed to, seems to harden a man's heart so much as to hear the gospel regularly and yet deliberately prefer the service of sin and the world. So the call this morning is don't harden your heart to this truth. Jesus knows you. He knows your thoughts. There's not a part you can hide from him. He loves you in spite of those thoughts. You're not an inconvenience. He wants to engage with you. And he can save you from your sins. He can heal all your wounds. So don't worry about the formula. Do I have the right words? Am I saying the right things? Am I thinking the right thoughts of your confession? Don't worry about that. Come to Jesus in prayer. Come to him. He's listening He's eager to forgive. He has aggressive forgiveness. He's looking for you. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you that you bless us, Lord. You bless us with your presence, that you'd waste no moments. And even this morning, you have something for every single person that's here. Lord, I ask that you would protect us from uh, having a hardened heart that actually prefers the service of sin in the world as opposed to yourself. The places where we're looking to something else to satisfy us and make us happy, that we know every single time we jump into it, it doesn't make us happy. 
that doesn't satisfy us? Jesus, would you give us a soft heart? Jesus, would you have your way with us? In Jesus' name, amen.